It's that time again. We go beyond the jive. Join our hosts, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is the hive jive. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? Um, as we pointed out just a minute ago, I look a little worse for wear. I, I look a little haggard. It was a hot bowl of soup that has apparently made my face flush and my cheeks very rosy, but it did make it look like I have worked my ass off today. <laughs> well, I knew you had been working hard, so I just didn't think any of anything I, of it, right? Honestly, it, it makes sense. I look the same at the moment in the face as I did the day that I ran in with my bee suit on and just sat down yeah. and started recording with you. So, you were, you were um, busy, right? yeah, but today it was no bees required. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Um, on the note of the bees real quick, just to, to give an update for everybody out there, the bear has not returned. So we have now made it an entire seven days. Plus um, last Saturday would have been a full week from the first incident. Mm -hmm. He did make a giant C. So they did identify that he was a young adult male. He's full grown, but he's he's probably just coming into his prime. Um, he had been sighted once or twice near the area back in July, but hadn't made it into town. He hit our house first whenever he did decide to come into town. And then he kind of made this C where he started south he went a little bit southwest, then he went further northwest, and then he arced back around to kind of the southeast. So he was making a half circle, and I fully expected he was going to complete that circle and come back and revisit anywhere he found tasty treats, aka my beehive. <laughs> so, so, but luckily, as of now, that has not occurred. Uh, they, the fishing game, said that. This time of year is kind of a, a migratory pass-through season for them where they're moving about and he's more than likely moving through, possibly still looking for a young lady, um, but it is getting towards the end of that season for them as well. That's usually July and August, and now we're, we're late into August, almost September. And so they didn't think he was going to settle down and stick around in the area, but if he did, then they were going to end up having to trap him and, and relocate him. So he, he got my neighbor's bird feeder that I told you guys about. He got our top bar hive. He got the trash can. Then when he was up in the other neighborhood, I don't know specifically what damage he did when he went to the next section, but the, so that was like Saturday at our house, Sunday at the next section, Monday, when he went up North, he was actually like North of downtown and he was at the end of the Ozarks and outside of the suites of the hotel. And so oh, wow. the hotel guest signed there. And then the next night he went down. So that was wrapping back around East and then heading kind of Southeast. Uh, he went down an entire street. Tuesday night was trash night. And he caught every single house basically as they were bringing oh, the trash out trash and was just night. destroying yeah. everything. Um, but that was the last report of anybody spotting him was on that that prior Tuesday. So it's been over a week since anybody saw him and then as of, or sorry, since he was here. And then as of today, it's been a week since the last sighting of him here in the, the vicinity. So hopefully we're good and he, he moves on. 
Mm-hmm. Um, definitely an interesting experience. And I I do have those sonic alarms that I think oh. I told you about, but I have not actually went and set up the tripwires to them yet. Um, I did manage to get out there and look. There was no queen. She did not make it. So, but the bees, in, and when you opened up the nuke, they just roared, you know, that classic, I'm oh, queenless. Man. Yeah. Um, I went ahead and took two frames from the other hive, put in there. One of them had eggs and, and larva in it. And so I'm going to allow them to attempt to make a queen. Okay. If they do make a queen and she successfully gets out there and mates, I will build them a two by nuke box so that I will try to overwinter them. And I may actually, since how the side of this is already ripped open, I may, I don't know yet, but I may go ahead and incorporate that two inch nuke box onto the side of the top bar and make it kind of a permanent transition top bar where like you were saying, where I can just use anytime I want to put those in and let them expand out, do splits from it and move it over. So, um, so that's possibly the plan, but ultimately if it fails and they don't successfully raise a queen or she doesn't look like she's got a good pattern, they're just going to be combined with the Langstroth and call it good. So so that's that's kind of where we are on that. Um, I thought I had another. Oh, yes, I don't. Um, I do have a listener question. Today, we're going to actually talk about a potential new mite treatment, uh, which is still years down the road, but just kind of the hypothetical concept of it. So that's the main point for today's beekeeper chat, but we're going to squeeze in a few extra things. There's a listener question here we're going to talk about in just a second. But first, how's everything going over there with you? or down there, I should say, with you. <laughs> um, everything is good. We've got some uh, pollen, bright yellow pollen coming in the beehives. The dirt seems to be um, just kind of uh, going away. We've got nectar coming in. Uh, the bees are building back up and um, things are looking up basically because it's been a rough, long, hot summer and the dirt yeah. is super extended. The populations have contracted so much that we were worried they would not bounce back because we don't like feeding our bees. And um, we're happy to see that, you know, with the rain, a lot of things are blooming and um, it's cooling off around here a little bit. So things are looking up. That's good. And yeah. now, unfortunately for, for anybody who doesn't live in Texas and hasn't watched the news recently, um, this year has very much been feast or famine. So you went into a drought and then it started looking like, and it still possibly could be, but it started looking like it was going to be the start of another historic drought, which the last one lasted for several years. Lake levels dropped by 75 foot. It was horrific. Um, But you all did get some rain here recently, but unfortunately a little bit further North of you in Dallas, it did not stop raining. And they ended up with 13 inches of rain in less than 24 hours. And like everything was flooded. So once you've got that really hard, hot ground, yeah. it can't absorb that water. It just washes right. away and, and causes even bigger issues. So it's been a real tough year. There, you know, there were states up in the northern areas where that same thing occurred about a month ago where they got torrential downpours of rain and everything flooded. And it went from massive heat wave to now we're drowning. Um, so feast or famine, it's it's been a rough year. Um, you know, I think every year has some something. So we we deal with too much rain. Then we don't have enough rain. Then we had COVID and then we had the repeat of COVID. And then we had a really right. dry spell. Now we got too many. It's like, there's always something that throws a wrench into the plans for sure. And to your point, I mean, we're farmers, right? And there's never a perfect scenario. I mean, sometimes you make a bumper crop. Sometimes you make, you know, your bees are doing fantastic because it's, it's a, a bounty of food coming in. But the reality of 
it is that, you know, it's never really perfect and there's always something coming around the corner, even when you have a, a good situation. And it doesn't apply to all the micro local areas either, right? It depends where you are. So it's just kind of, you know, farming is tough and um, beekeeping is no different from that standpoint. That's true. It's, it's got all the same challenges. And in some instances, there's things you don't have to worry about. In other instances, there's things you have to worry about that a crop farmer would not necessarily. So there's a give and take all the way around the board. Yeah, that flying thing makes it a little harder <laughs> to control things. <laughs> I can't make them go where I want them to. I just have to try to hedge my bets. <laughs> I can't fence them in. There's something, you know, <laughs> something about that. But that you know, is, that is wild. True. Yeah, they're pretty wild, actually. I would qualify them as wild because they can leave anytime they want to. And they, <laughs> right, right. I that, That's one of the things where I've always thought it was funny when, when some opponents to beekeeping will say, oh, but you're, you know, you're, you're, they're slaves and you're holding them captive. And I'm like, nope, no, they can literally leave anytime they want. Exactly. <laughs> like they leave every day to go find food. So. <laughs> and, and they do abscond. They do leave. That happens quite a bit, actually. Yep. So that is true. You can't retain them. If they've decided to leave, you can't hold them back unless you shut down all the entrances. Yeah. Or, I mean, okay, even when you me. have, well, I was going to say, even when you use queen excluders, I've watched instances where they have skinnied her down to the point where she could fit through there right. and she still gets out and then they eventually leave. It just takes them longer, you know, or like West, worst case scenario. They yank her so hard through that excluder. They shred her. They, they kill her. Yeah. They rip her in half trying to get her help or pull her through. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it, you know, when they want to do it, they're going to do it. And that's all there is to it. So they're definitely not a captive audience. <laughs> no, they're not. So, um, okay. So listener question, this one is one that actually, uh, just came in via email yesterday, I believe, uh, yesterday evening. So the, the point of it basically is, and I, I did not ask for additional details, so I cannot tell you regions, areas, um, continents. I'm going to, I'm going to assume it's here in the United States, but mm -hmm. the forecast has for them 112 degree temperatures coming up for the next several days. They wanted to know on a Langstroth beehive what they should do. Should they go ahead and open it up all the way? Um, you know, what do they need to do to go ahead and help these bees prepare for this massive heat wave that's about to hit them? I I provided an answer, okay. and uh, I can I can tell you what that is, but I will I will let you give your unbiased opinion first, and then I'll corroborate with uh, however I responded. Okay, so chances are if you've got that heat, you also have some kind of a dearth. So the less you interfere with them, the better off they are. The other thing, the other aspect of that is that the more you open them, the more you have a disruption of the internal conditions, the those endogenous factors we talk about a lot, right? And and the temperatures, the humidity, and the vapor compounds of propolis. And so you know you do that in a in a 112 Fahrenheit degree if they have any kind of brood whatsoever you're really throwing them off and you're really causing them stress because they're going to try they're going to have to work that much harder to re-establish those temperatures especially if they have brood if they're broodless it's a little bit less the case but the point is i wouldn't really open them if you do absolutely have to go in i would go early morning or late at night uh, but the other thing I would do is um, maybe potentially make sure they have water uh, accessible because that becomes even more so important. And uh, if you don't have a water source nearby or, or close enough, 
put a boardman feeder in the entrance with just water. It's not going to attract robbers or anything. They'll provide them with some water. Uh, the other thing I would do is um, if they're not in the shade, which, you know, we're looking with the way the weather is changing these days and all that heat is um, increasing everywhere, the sun gets really hot. So we're putting all our hives in shade. But if your hives are not in shade, full shade all day, uh, at least put afternoon shade. But even then, I think it's going to be, you know, 112. We've seen it in our yards. That's too hot still. And so in a length trough, what I would do is I would um, add a couple of bars on top of the lid, the outer cover and another um, flat surface or rain cover or something, what it's going to do is going to create a layer of airflow on top of your outer cover and provide additional uh, protection from the sun. Because if you don't, uh, you might very well have the top of your um, frames, your wax at a top box melt. Uh, I've seen it in long Langstroth, I've seen it in Langstroth, and it's it gets to be really, really um, stressful for the colony. So that's the kind of uh, recommendations I would make, basically. I would not open them if I don't have to. And if they had a queen and if they had food, and um, why go in, right? Leave them alone, minimize the stress. Is that so, what you were expecting? Because you were saying- yeah. No, that, that's yeah. that's good. Um, no, that was to something. We'll get to that part in a minute. Oh, okay, that, that wasn't for that. <laughs> so let me clarify one part real quick so then you can you can go back and add additional if you want to. Okay. Um, that's all excellent. And a lot of that I did mention in there. But when I said open, what I what I was referring to, and I should have clarified more was, should they fully open the entrance all the way across the hive? Or should they leave it reduced? So they were they were referring to the entrance reducer. Okay. Um, but everything you said about physically opening up the colony, yeah, you don't need to be doing inspections at that point in okay. time. But also what you said about controlling the airflow, controlling all that stuff going on inside the colony, the temperature yeah. still comes into play yeah. with something even as simple as the entrance itself. So right. on that aspect, what would you say about should they go ahead and remove the entrance bar and have it fully open or should they leave it alone? I wouldn't leave it all open. I would leave it to the uh, smallest possible entrance that the traffic requires. If they have a larger colony, you might need to put it on the larger um, reduction of, yeah. Uh, if it's a small colony, definitely bring it to the minimum. I mean, I like to use the disc entrance reducers even on the Langstroth because I have more control on what I'm doing. And then I can put several holes. If I have a large population that needs a lot of um, uh, exits, then I would open the other holes. But if I don't, most of the colonies will be um, uh, happy with just one of those holes. And they're about th three quarter of an inch and you have that disc over. So you plug up uh, everything that's not needed. And then even then with that disc entrance reducer, I like to put a pencil in it and squeeze it with my disc entrance reducer. That's just enough for one bee at a time to get in and out. And that does a couple of things. It allows uh, them to protect themselves from robbing, which in those conditions tends to be an issue, right? When there's a dearth, they, they go and look for food and they'll look in the other hives and they, they might um, end up killing the weaker colonies because it's wide open. Um, I think that colonies are better off keeping the entrances as small as possible throughout the year based on the traffic that they have. Why? Because the, um, the way they are um, mastering the airflows in the colonies is more tightly controlled when they have a smaller entrance. It's kind of like having the door open on your house um, and you've got the air conditioning running, Trying to run the, AC. Have the heat running, and then your units are working that much harder. 
What that means is that they're consuming more resources to expend that energy to control it better because it's it's highly inefficient when you leave the door open. And um, I have seen colonies, basically they, they will kick out uh, bees out. It's usually more related to humidity than it is to heat actually, but they'll let them uh, hang out on the front porch. They don't want to add that, that um, metabolism heat inside or that breathing inside when it's too humid and they're trying to dehydrate the nectar. So they'll kick all those uh, idle bees out on the front porch, I call that. And then you'll see very often, uh, I have a great video, maybe I'll try to send it to you. Uh, you'll see a bunch of bees that are sitting on the outside facing the entrance. That could be all around. So you might have a beard around and then sometimes you have a hole around the entrance, it's cleared out. And then on our top of highs, we've seen them line up on the leg and, and close to the entrance, all facing uh, that direction. And then they're gonna anchor themselves down to the wood and just start batting their wings as fast as they can. Fanning, yeah. Fanning and, and pulling that air current, that humidity and that heat out of the hive if they need to control that. When it's hot like this, 112, if the humidity is low, they're going to use a lot of water to spray on the brood's nest and on the on the cells to try and create a swamp cooler effect and allow them to decrease its thermodynamics, basically. And those exchanges of heat and, and the humidity being pulled out, it's going to start cooling off the inside of the hive. So that airflow is gonna be very important. But again, if you leave that door wide open, you have a problem for them. You're creating a problem for them to um, manage those airflows. And that's where the cross ventilation, when a lot of people tell you to put a penny or put a popsicle sticks or crack it open. And then the worst is to use screen bottom boards, right? You've got that's wide open. They can't control anything. All right, so I, I would say just not too big. Don't don't keep your open your entrances open too big. I think it's counterproductive, personally. Yeah. So the uh, the response that I gave was along the same lines. Where if you were to open it up all the way, say it hasn't been, you've got your introducer in there. It's either on the one inch or the three inch. More than likely, based on what most people would do, based on literature and everything, it's going to probably be on that three inch opening. Mm -hmm. My thing was either leave it on the three inch. Or if you feel like there's too much congestion and traffic, if it's on the one inch, switch it to the three inch, but absolutely do not take out that bar because if you take it out, you've now opened the entire front, which does two yep. things. It makes it harder for them to control the airflow going in and out. Mm -hmm. And it increases the surface area that they have to guard, yep. which then makes them more susceptible to robbing. As you mentioned, bees could then come in and rob them out, causes more problems. So leaving that narrow reduced entrance in there is actually better. They can control the airflow in and out. They can actually create that circulation to come back out of there. I did mention if they were super concerned about it, there was a few things that they could do. And, and one of them was that a lot of inner covers have that top notch. Mm -hmm. You can make sure that top notch is actually open so that airflow could come out over the inner cover. Acts kind of like an attic in a house ventilating out. That heat goes up through the hole in the center of the inner cover builds up underneath the lid and then can vent out through that hole. That hole is also small enough that it can be guarded and the bees can use it to create airflow if they need to, mm -hmm. but you're not doing like you said, where some people prop up the whole inner cover, right. because again, you've now created an entire space, the width of the hive that has to be guarded and they can't control that airflow going in and out. That's right. Um, so I, I mentioned that, but then one of the other things that I mentioned that probably would sound odd at first thought is 
You could also do the same concept that you would do preparing for winter. If you're in an area or if you're ever accustomed to doing like an insulated top box where you've gone and put another box above there that has insulation in it, it does the same effect for the summer as it does the winter. It contains and controls that internal environment. So it actually helps reflect the heat out and hold in the internal temperature. So that was something else that I mentioned you could do. Add that empty box up to the top, put some sort of be safe insulation or filling inside there that they're not going to mess up and it will help actually help them regulate stuff. So that was another option. Um, but overall, absolutely correct. And I love to point this out to people. So my knee-jerk reaction is always, well, what would they do in the wild if you weren't there to intervene, right? right? In a tree, nobody's going to come and open up the hole bigger or smaller yeah. or do any of this other stuff. But also the key point of this other part is you're talking about, you know, move them into the shade. We always tell everybody when you set up a top bar hive, it absolutely needs to have midday and late day shade. It can be in the sun in the morning, but it needs to have that shade later in the day because when summer hits and you're in that heat of summer, the comb on those bars, if you don't have that roof and the insulation and stuff done properly, can get super hot and with the weight can separate and fall. And mm -hmm. if it's in the shade, it helps it a little bit because it doesn't have that direct sunlight. Well, in nature, contrary to all of your books that you read on beekeeping that are written by commercial beekeepers, yeah. where are bee colonies found? In the hole of a tree. And what is a tree? A giant shade canopy. They're completely surrounded by shade. <laughs> and they're in a very insulated, I mean, sometimes like oh, this thick. thick, yeah. Right? So yeah. They're, they're very, I mean, insulation matters. Thermal mass matters. What is stressful to the colonies, whether it's in the cold or in the heat, is those drastic sudden changes as swings. temperatures, yeah. swings. And so that thickness of insulation does matter. You're completely correct. And, and, and having more of that, yeah, they're not going to heat the cavity, but that's not, that's not, that's moot. What right. we're looking for is a stabilization of the conditions through thermal mass, right? And um, the other thing I was going to mention is the top of hives, we actually are putting them now in complete shade uh, because it's been so hot in Texas. But the point about the, the combs melting is that you need a lot of airflow above those bars, meaning no matter where your hives are, especially there in the sun, in the shade, it's not as bad. But what happens is that if you have a lot of people will make those uh, covers without airflow or they'll build those kind of like triangular with the ants closed up and it's just kind of has to kind of like close it up. Guess what happens in the house where the attic doesn't have those little fans on each side? That's right. It gets yeah. really, really hot. And there's so there is a, a top bar that was out there at the, the main apiary that is exactly that way where it's got the piano hinge on the back and the lid opens up and it's an A-frame lid. And that was a top bar that a gentleman had that they got a little bit too crazy. He was in fear for his kid's safety. And oh. we removed it and brought it out there to the farm and placed it out there with the other top bars. I hate that top bar because yeah. every summer, the comb in the very middle falls mm -hmm. every summer and the point of that is you've got this peaked roof all yep. the heat builds up right there in the middle the which superheats the comb in the center and the comb separates and falls. falls every summer i would have to go through there and clean that out and it wasn't falling from me managing it because i purposefully didn't touch it <laughs> so right. you would you would go do your check and you'd be like oh crap because it also it has a, it has a view window on the back you can open up and you look and you oh, can yeah. see there's a mess, you know, so, um, 
And so the, the one thing you could do at the very least is open up holes at the ends of that canopy, right? So yeah. just let the air flow through it. I'm not even sure why people want to close it absolutely because there's no reason. It's right. just a rain cover right. and a shade, right? So there's no need to, to, to close it up at each end. The other thing that we need to remember is that in the summer, uh, during the dearth, when it's really hot, the population decreases. And when the population decreases, it becomes harder for them to maintain those conditions of temperature. Right, there's less bees to work. So that's a, that's a just a, it makes it even worse. Basically. Yeah. So when we're when we're talking about lids and tops and things like that, we'll we'll move on to the next subject here in just a moment. But uh, basically, what Natalie is saying is, do not build a Langstroth lid for yes, a top right. bar hive. It no is not supposed to sit directly on top of those bars. Um, I've built lids before that do have the square frame. They've got metal over the top of them, or, or in my case, usually it was corrugated plastic that was UV resistant. But what I do is the way that I would build my legs, they made a stand. And mm -hmm. then I had a six inch lip basically around that, that set on top of that stand. So if you squatted down and looked, you had at least a four inch gap. You could see straight through between the lid and the bars. So airflow could move through there. The other great thing with it is it helps reduce the chances of mice and rats building nests in there, yeah. scorpions getting under there, snakes getting under there, because now you've got this open cavity that lets light through. It's not a safe, dark place. Yep. It, it just, yeah, it makes it better. And then the, and the, the version that Les does, that corrugated metal and then just arcing it and ratcheting it down, huge opening. You can stand at one end and look through it like a tunnel out to yep. the other side. Well, and the advantage also is that you can put insulation in the winter or yep. even in the summer, if you want to, because that's the one thing that could be working out. If you have, um, uh, you don't want dead air that doesn't flow. But if you do put insulation underneath that rain cover, that's okay. It sits right on top of the bars so that heat is not going to get to the cones. Right. And it's going to help, again, maintain the internal temperatures and thermal dynamics mm -hmm. of the actual colony inside the hive. So there you go. Okay. okay so... There you go. Listener question out of the way, just for everybody's enjoyment. I mean, it's still summer. It's still August. It's still hot. Yeah. Worth talking about and, and worth hearing the different uh, different opinions, which ultimately in the long run are very, very similar, very uh, similar responses that you would get there from those aspects. So yeah. the other thing, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, thank you for the question. I'm always grateful for listening questions because that gives us the opportunity to uh, address those. And I'm sure that other people are, asking themselves similar questions at some point. So thank you. Yeah. Okay. So today's main topic, as if all the as other stuff hasn't been enough for you guys, <laughs> the, uh, the main topic is basically just uh, briefly touching on an article that came out here recently. This is not new news, but it is kind of new news. And I say not new because they've been working on it now for three years but it's still several years away from any type of actual implementation. But a research team up in Canada, in British Columbia, uh, has uncovered a compound. They've named the compound 3C36. And this compound is currently being tested to fight varroa mites inside of a honeybee colony. The interesting thing with this is that the researcher that originally discovered it discovered it because she was doing research projects about the sense of smell in insects and how it could persuade or dissuade an insect from a certain food choice, kind of deterring them from it. And they started broadening their research to test it on other types of insects. And they found that it had a paralyzing and ultimately deadly effect 
on varroa mites without having any current known effects on the honeybees. So there's lots of caveats that go along with this. The, the one aspect of it is going to be that it is a compound, which means it is more than likely some sort of possibly synthetic thing. It never says in there whether or not it's organic or not, but I will tell you, as we've mentioned before, even if it is organic, bleach is organic, and contrary to what some people have said, you should not drink it. <laughs> oh, uh, yes, exactly. Very good example. And, and, and acid is um, organic. For the, a lot of the acids are organic as well. Doesn't mean you want to take a shower in them necessarily. No, really, without kidding, you know what else is organic? DDT. That's true. Because and that was horrifically deadly yeah, and, and poisonous to the people. <laughs> the point is that when we talk about organic treatments and beekeeping, it doesn't mean organic like what your, your groceries at the grocery store are. It doesn't mean that it was uh, grown without pesticides. It means that it's the opposite of inorganic. It means right. that there's a bond between an atom of carbon and a, a, a hydrogen. And so it doesn't mean it's innocuous by any means. DDT, nope. uh, the toxic um, component of Agent Orange is also organic. Naphthalene is organic, which is mothballs basically. And we all know that's like really bad. Uh, so there's all kinds of things that are organic, but that's a chemistry term. That's not the commonly, the, you know, the way we use when we right. talk about organic. And some of, the, some of the times the organic things too are also naturally occurring they haven't necessarily been chemically altered or engineered to bond together. They're just that way, such as formic acid. But right. you don't ever encounter formic acid in the concentrations that you do That's in a treatment in nature, even though it is a naturally occurring substance. You took the words out of my mouth because basically that's the dose that makes the poison, right? The, right. the father of modern toxicology, Dr. Um, Paracelsus, I think, uh, did say that. And he was right on, right? You can have like a minor, it's like a homeopathic dose of those formic acid or oxalic acid or, or whatever. There's some in spinach whatever but when we use them as treatments they're hyper concentrated and they become hyper caustic in a way and they take a toll on the creature uh, even though because basically what we're doing is we're using i'm sorry i'm jumping on my soapbox but the the uh we're, we're using um compound that's meant at killing or maiming an arthropod on the back of another bigger arthropod and it's bound to take a toll and it does i mean all yep. of those things take a toll on the colony when they're used as a treatment to curb the population of mites yeah and that is it's also one of those things too that if you look at the human component and we're far removed from an insect mm -hmm. yet how many times in the last few years have you heard reports come out that tell you things that normally you would think don't affect you mm -hmm. suddenly are now being known to have caused cancer over the last oh, yeah. decade. You know, even, even something as simple as, you know, we took for granted roundup weed killer yeah. that you go out there and you spray in your yard and you're okay. killing all those flowers. And, oh, but it's fine <laughs> because I'm not a weed. So it doesn't yeah. matter. Wrong. <laughs> right. I've heard that too. Yeah. But, but yet again, there you go it actually does have some sort of consequence. So that being said, is going to really screw up the next thing that I'm going to say, because, you know, we always love to talk about unintended consequences. I so, was going to say that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so 
the 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 part of this research the the there's not a lot out there about it at the moment the researcher though is very upfront very forward very honest with the fact that there's still a lot of testing and trials that need to be done they're currently doing trials in canada right now on this and the current results of those trials show that this compound is having a similar or comparable effect as other treatments which are not named right. Mm -hmm. of mite drops when the treatment is used versus when no treatment is used. And then they go through and they do other known treatments and they compare those and it is similar or comparable. So right. it's not a cure-all. It's not a, you use this compound and every mite dies. Mm -hmm. And the researcher does also mention specifically that it is not known how long the efficacy of it may last before resistance is built up to it, right. which is another problem we've experienced multiple times with these different treatments. So it's just something interesting. It's something new. It's, uh, you know, it's something out there that could change things. It may not because it may be the same concept as everything else we've looked at. And it may just be something else for people who do treatments to wrap into their IPM, their integrated pest management and, and have another tool in the box so that maybe those things don't build up that tolerance and then stop working, lose the efficacy. Yeah. So, so here's my question though. And, and this is the, this is the fun part of it. So is there a world where if they ever did truly find something that only affected the mite and the mite only, and there were no unintended consequences for the bee, would it ever be something that you would consider using? With ifs, we would put pears in bottles. That's what we say, right? You know, that's our say. <laughs> you could do anything with ifs. What if, you know, it's fine. But um, the point is that... Uh, I don't believe that could happen. I think that it's hard to do. Again, you're trying to address uh, issues with an arthropod on top of another arthropod. Um, in a lot of those things are oil-based and they soak into the uh, wax and they just leave residue or they you know, have all kinds of consequences. But to your point, I think that um, in the end, if we did find such a silver bullet, which I don't think we can. Yeah, silver bullets um, usually don't exist. But yeah. but for our for our little thought process here, it's all what if. <laughs> if we have if the bees, if that's what we need to use for our bees for them to be fit or survive and thrive, um, then what do they do when we're no longer around? Right. So that's not solving any issues. What the, the point of such a treatment is to, and she says it, um, it's to increase productivity. Um, and it always comes down to that, right? The bees have found ways already to deal with that. That's called resistance and tolerance. And they have all kinds of mechanisms that they use and uh, like um, hygienic behavior, mite bite, mite um, ankle biting behavior and capping, recapping. Uh, they will go and swarm and just create brood breaks to cleanse their, you know, rejuvenate their, their nests. There's all kinds of things that the bees already do. If we do remove completely the pests, I, I mean, I think that that's fine, but in the end that they're not given the opportunity to um, get use that pressure to find to develop those strategies and to be stronger and more resilient, meaning without us, they cannot do it, right? So I, I mean, I don't know. I, I just think that we don't need it in what we do, why would we spend the money, expend the time and the you know possible 
unintended consequences that we think don't exist, but might because the superorganism is so complicated and, and so intricate that maybe there's things we don't see, right? right? But I don't know. I mean, I guess it's an interesting question. I would say, I don't know. I, I don't see that happening, first of all. And second, I, I would have to wonder about the implications, basically. Right. Well, so you answered exactly the way that I thought you would. That, that's why I was like, oh, don't worry. You don't need to know in advance. I already know what you're going to say. It's all good. So one of the things that you brought up, though, that is a very valid point is that even if a beekeeper, being the key phrase here, even if a beekeeper had a way to eradicate all mites inside their colony without harming the honeybees, yeah. you can't eradicate all the mites in all the feral colonies in all the world. So all you've done is made your bees fine until, as you said, you're no longer there. And yes. now when you're no longer there, there's this thing that comes back in from other places because that's how it happens. And whack. And now your bees have no way to go through and try to compensate for that because they never had the stressor to make them learn and adapt and try to find these other ways to go through and do stuff. So yeah, that, that's exactly how I figured you would go through and answer the question right. is ultimately no, because the bees will evolve and learn and right. come up with creative super organism solutions right. to said problem and therefore it it's all going to be fine um, like, do we think that we can put our bee colonies into a bubble right that's the, right. that's the main thing you know those bubble people that have well, weakened immune so the, systems and everything yeah there was the movie the boy in the bubble yeah. and what happened the instant he got out of the bubble he, he got not. sick and died. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, exactly. sorry if you haven't seen that movie that was from the 80s. Oh, not my fault if that's a spoiler, spoiler but still. Um, another another little scenario that I really like, because I like sometimes these weird analogy-esque or comparison type things. So I honestly do not remember the name of the story. I remember reading it when I was in high school and I thought it was fascinating because you have this gentleman who donates his body to science for the act of uh, cryogenics and being frozen. And he's mm -hmm. not supposed to be thought out until a future time when all the technology is like perfected. And so, and I, I actually don't remember if he may, I don't think he was a prisoner because there was a, there's another part there. Yeah. There was another <laughs> little aspect in there too, but anyhow, so he was he gets a military frozen. guy and he got in there by mistake or something. I think something well, happened. Yeah, he, he gets frozen in the past. Yep. And then way in the distant future, they thaw him out. They rejuvenate him. And he's in this very clean, sterile environment. And they're talking to him about like all of the wonders that the world has done. They've cured cancer. They've cured all these diseases. Everything is beautiful and wonderful. And as he's sitting there talking to him, he kind of gets a sniffle and then he sneezes and he coughs and everybody freaks out and panics. Uh -huh. And he tells him, he goes, no, 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 it's fine. It's probably just from me being frozen. Like it might just be a cold or something. And then they all panic. And <laughs> as they're driving, like dragging him off to execute him, he oh. learns that the only thing that they could never cure was the common cold. And they eradicated everybody that had it. So therefore it didn't exist anymore. But because of that, they had absolutely no resistance to it. Exactly. And so he could have had any other disease in the world, but because he had the common cold, he now had to be put to death because their okay. society couldn't deal with it. Oh, I thought that was, you were talking, initially I thought you were talking about an idiocracy, but that's a different movie. Yeah, that's a different yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was a, this was a story. It was a story in a book, but it was, it was a really interesting concept because it was like they made so many advances, right. but the one thing that they couldn't overcome, they annihilated. Right. And 
you know, is seemingly fine until it comes back into the equation. And now you don't have an immunity to it. You have no response. You have no weapons, no tool set to be able to combat it. Yeah, and they panicked. <laughs> so um, Kirk Webster, who's a very famous uh, natural beekeeper, and um, Dr. Kifus, who's in France, he's married to a French lady, and he lives in Toulouse, and he's been doing research for years, super smart guy. But both of them are talking about using that pressure from the past to get stronger bees. That's what it is. I mean, you know, you let your kids run around on the ground, they develop a stronger immune system kind of a thing. That's a similar kind of process. Um, Dr. Kifis has actually been known, he's the guy that um, branded the bond method or the soft bond method, basically survival of the fittest, you know, just get rid of the ones that are not thriving or that I'm not fit, which makes sense. And Take then, this uh, with a grain of salt listeners and don't send hate mail later. We're talking about bees and, and yes. hypothetical scenarios. Yes, I'm sorry. Don't I, start sending us hate mail about vaccinations and things. No, 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 that's got nothing <laughs> to do with that. Let's not open that can of worms. I know. But, uh, he, Dr. Kifus was even willing to pay, uh, I think, cents for pennies or something for uh, mites that people would be able to find um, or even buy mites because he needed them to apply that pressure to make his colonies stronger. As it stood, he had done the survival of the fittest kind of uh, um, approach and his bees were getting rid of all the mites. And the danger was there that if they got exposed back to mites at some point, then maybe it would be an issue for this very same reason. Yeah. So one of the other aspects too about mites specifically that I did find interesting about different studies that I helped participate in back in Texas, they had a really hard time reproducing the varroa mite in lab conditions. Mm -hmm. They had to go out to living outside external colonies to Mm -hmm. harvest mites to do their experiments because they couldn't get them to replicate properly inside the conditions of a controlled observation hive inside of a lab. So that was also like an interesting little thing there where people are like, oh, maybe we can put that into play. And I'm like, right, right. But also you're kind of also invalidating all of the other aspects of the colony when it's in an observation colony inside of a lab with, you know, different temperatures and controls and lights and glass where they can see through all the time. Like, so there's other things going on there too. But um, I did find that interesting when you mentioned he had to get them from other people you know, it, it was kind of an interesting scenario that I've encountered before where people were doing research right. and they and need to come to your colony and get the mites because they can't get them to do what they want in the lab. Right. And that's the difficulty of the research on the superorganism on the creature, because it's so complex that it's hard to, first of all, compare one colony to the other and to get such statistically significant results that make research meaningful. I mean, the extent of um, the number of colonies that you need to use to do those tests to be really uh, significant, it's, it's just kind of mind boggling. And so a lot of the research out there is, is also based on stock that was given and donated and not necessarily the kind of colonies that have been reared to be fit and to fend for themselves and to be resilient and tolerant, right? So a lot of them are already by nature uh, not as strong and more susceptible to the damage by them from the mites, right? You know what a good example of that? It, and I don't know why this actually just kind of came to mind, but I thought about it back whenever we were actually doing it. But when you're doing 
like for instance, the master beekeeper program, and you're doing mm -hmm. the testing and you have to do the test with the actual hives, mm -hmm. those hives that show up have been donated by beekeepers. Mm -hmm. They're not going to donate their best quality hives. No, they're going to donate not. ones that are questionable because mm -hmm. you're about to have 50 people tear through the colony 50 times going through and doing this, you know, exactly. hypothetical inspection. And so it, it, it's also one of those aspects where, well, if you're not truly looking at an actual functioning colony or a colony that is robust and healthy, what are you actually learning from it? But at the same time, you don't want your colony to be inspected 50 times in a row, bam, 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 back to back. <laughs> right. And so to your point, I mean, the kind of bees that are going into the research programs are often not the ones representative of what a strong colony is in nature, right? And then you have, uh, add on top of that, the fact that a lot of the researchers are more researchers than beekeepers and maybe not have that extended experience over the years of uh, thousands of colonies or just really kind of looking at the bees for what they are instead of looking at them through basically a microscope, right? So that's something to keep in mind there as well. I just think that... Um, the, uh, the, the, the research needs to be taken with a grain of salt. The other aspect of things is that what, um, what people are researching a lot is, is mostly for the sake of commercial beekeeping and honey production. That's because um, that's where the money is. So right. yeah. And, and so that's not necessarily in the best interest of the colonies. What we're looking at with less is more the fitness, naturally fit colonies. And, and, you know, if they don't produce, as much and often because they're healthier they do produce as much and, and if not more um but what we're looking at is that we want them to be fit and not rely on us basically yeah let them be as they would be in nature and give them their natural food sources don't be pumping them full of artificial stuff allow them to have their natural ebb and flow their natural breaks their natural periods of growth and expansion and contraction um, and they are all the stronger and healthier for it because you're not forcing them to go 24 seven nonstop because you want an extra pound of honey. That's basically where the problems start, right? It's just kind of, uh, we're trying to, um, we we're looking at them like commodities. And if we were to tune into the nature of the bee, then maybe we would, um, be better able to understand what makes them healthy. That's true. So there you go, everybody. Now, lots of things to think about in this episode here. Um, lots of fun conversation and and thought experiments along the way. So hopefully, uh, you know, it's it's made you stop and think about something, anything. We've talked about several different topics. Maybe it's the whole, it's really hot. What do I need to do to my beehive? Maybe it's the concept of treating versus not, concept of new experimental treatments that are coming out, or just the simple fact of, you know, let the colony be the colony that it's supposed to be see how many bees we can get in there. I um, love to point out that um, the articles talked about how it had little to no impact on the bees. And another one says not very damaging or not having a very big impact on the bees, meaning there is some and it's considered a trade-off they're willing to take, but who knows? Well, and, yeah. And one of the other articles too, though, um, the researcher does admit that there still could be repercussions mm -hmm. that are unknown and if those repercussions are not something that is acceptable and if the final cost of whatever this compound that's ends right. up being is not acceptable then it's all for naught and it's not anything that's ever going to make it to market anyway it's so and that's that is what i like though is that they're being very almost pragmatic in a way 
they're being realistic with knowing the outcome and what it could be and and the things to look for along the way the red flags so i did like that aspect of it um and 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 again there's always no matter what there's always some sort of unintended consequence but it's funny because i was reading the first uh, sentence of a lot of those articles and it was kind of like oh we might have a silver bullet and i'm like yeah right (laughs) yeah there's no such thing yeah so well I, again, I hope everybody enjoyed. I hope you had something in there to uh, either laugh at or scratch your head over. And uh, as always, shake your fist at. Shake like, your fist at. But don't send us hate mail about vaccinations. <laughs> Damn it. Um, for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, that's sort of an inside joke from like a year ago. Um, but yeah, so uh, somebody took something way out of context and then ran with it way off into left field into a whole nother category of stuff. So, um, but anyhow, thank you. And as always, we appreciate you tuning in and listening and we look forward to talking to you again next week, but until then be good. And of course be mindful. Bye-bye everybody. This Hive Jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you. And we appreciate your support to all our Hive Jive junkies out there. You truly are the bee's knees.